Our scripture reading today is in two parts. The first one is from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. The testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked them, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now John chapter three, verses 25 through 30. John the Baptist exalts Christ. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bridegroom is the who the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Good morning. I'm Nathan Boyette, one of your pastors here, at least for a little while longer. This is my last Sunday preaching with you all, and my last um, opportunity to share with you all some things dear to my heart, which is illustrated by this passage. We're going to be starting our sermon series in Psalms for the summer, starting next week, but Harrison and Drew gave me an opportunity to preach as my last sermon, and I chose this passage. This passage is really indicative of what I have been praying over the past three years for my ministry at EP, and pray for my entire future ministry as a pastor. So let me pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us so that we might be encouraged, challenged, and blessed. Holy Spirit, we pray you would be present here right now, that you would speak through me, that you would touch our hearts and help us to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My family and I are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia right now, and we recently, or we're currently in Prince Caspian. Caspian is the rightful king of Narnia, but his uncle Miraz killed his father usurped the throne, and Miraz recently had a son of his own. And so in fear of his life, Caspian had to flee the castle because he, his tutor knew that Caspian's life was in danger. And Caspian runs into the old Narnians, the talking beasts, the dwarves, other magical creatures. 
they adopt him as their king. But Miraz finds out where Caspian is and pursues him, attacks the old Narnians and Caspian, and they are in danger and in desperate need. They need to be saved. And they have this ancient horn, Queen Susan's horn, which when blown will always bring help. They blow the horn. They send a squirrel and a a dwarf trumpkin off to two places where they think the help might come. They wait for a long time, but help does not seem to come. And one of the dwarves, Nicobrick, mockingly questions whether the horn really worked at all. He says it's just a fairy tale that it would call the ancient kings and queens. Aslan's not real, the great lion. He argues that they should instead look to the white witch. She who held Narnia under her thumb for hundreds of years. We should look to her for help, he argues. If we can't get help from Aslan and the kings and queen, then we should look to her for rescue. We are not unlike Nicobrick. We seek rescue and salvation from trials and difficulties. The first century of John and Jesus' day was the same. It was filled with messianic expectations. People were under the oppression of Rome, and they wanted release and rescue. The people and leaders wanted someone to come and deliver them from their oppression. They wanted a savior, a leader who would fix the horrible situation that they found themselves in. And so they expected the Christ The Christ means Messiah, anointed one, Savior. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a practice of anointing kings, prophets, priests as God's chosen leaders. These individuals were God's leaders and saviors in the Old Testament. But by Jesus' day, there had been no special prophets, no special priests, no special kings for a long time. It seemed as if God was quiet, so they expected a special Messiah, a Christ who would come to save them. We live in a world broken by sin. Bad things happen to us and around us every day, every week. And so all of us, all humans, long for salvation of some sort. From the Chronicles of Narnia to Jesus' day to our day, people in difficult and desperate situations look for salvation, for relief, for rescue. They look for a Christ, a Savior, who will rescue them and make all things right. And our passages, our two passages, give us the idea that Jesus alone is the Christ, so we should exalt him alone. Jesus alone is the Christ, so we should exalt him alone. And we're going to explore this idea through three points. We are not the Christ. They are not the Christ. Jesus alone is the Christ. The first thing we see in our passages is that whether we realize it or not, we sometimes think of ourselves as the Christ, the Savior, both individually and collectively, we think this way sometimes. In our passage, we see Jewish leaders come to John the Baptist to ask him who he is. We know from the other Gospels that John was having an effective and fruitful ministry at this time. Matthew 3 talks about how in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and the crowds were flocking to him to find out who he was, what he was preaching. We also know that John lived a simple, ascetic life. He dressed in uncomfortable clothes and ate strange food. So he was intriguing to people. John was from a family of Levites, and his father was actually a priest. So he knew the religious situation of God's people. He was well familiar with what was going on. 
of the expectations and hopes that people had. In a few passages, John spoke very negatively of the religious leaders and the religion of his day. He called them a brood of vipers. He saw how far from God they really were. However, John was having a big positive impact on the crowds of people. So many were going to be baptized by him. They were wanting to hear him preach. And as a result, the leaders sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you, John? John confesses, I am not the Christ. The English translation here is somewhat confusing. It says confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It's confusing, but one commentator notes that this is the author's way of saying that even John the Baptist's denials that he was the Christ are part of his positive witness to the real, true Christ, Jesus. Even his denial is a confession of the real Christ. And so John confesses, I am not the Christ. And so the leaders go on and ask him, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet spoken of by Moses that we've been waiting for to lead us and guide us? No. They're getting frustrated. They're like, come on, John, then who are you? Tell us. He replies in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, I am just a voice pointing to the Lord God who will come. I am a preliminary witness to what you've been waiting for. They ask him, then why are you baptizing? And he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The one who will come after him is far, far, far greater than him. He's not even worthy to touch his dirty sandal, he says. John eventually baptizes Jesus, and he proclaims him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Weeks, if not months later, we hear in John 3 how as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, some of John's disciples become jealous. They see all of John's followers leaving John and going to follow Jesus, to be baptized by him. They come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And they are all going to him. John is not jealous. He simply says in verses 28 and 30, you all know that I already said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John compares himself to a simple friend of the bridegroom who rejoices when the bride and the bridegroom finally meet. The Old Testament often compared God to the groom and Israel, God's people, to the bride. He says that his joy is finally complete because this long-awaited expectation has been realized. And he says, he must increase and I must decrease. It's a human tendency to make much of ourselves, to arrogantly think that we are great, necessary, important, a savior, if you will. But here in these passages, we see John say, Jesus must increase while I must decrease. Jesus is greatest. Let him be the center now. I was merely preparing the way. I can fade into the background. Let us follow John's example, reminding ourselves that we are not the Christ. Our group is not the Christ that we're in part of. Jesus alone is the Christ. 
let us confess that privately, publicly, individually, and collectively. A number of years ago, I was watching a TV show, and it was very ironic because one of the episodes was a, a change from the typical TV show. The typical TV show it focuses only on the main characters, but this one episode was from the perspective of a non-main character, a peripheral character, if you were. And it was fascinating to watch the same events that had been shown in earlier TV shows from the point of view of this inconsequential character. You saw how the character was ignored by all the other main characters. You saw how this character just seemed to go through life. It made me realize how we all tend to think that we are the main character of the story. We all subconsciously or consciously often think that we are the center of the world, that it revolves around us, but we are not. And this is not disappointing news. It should not be disappointing news to us. This should be good news. When Christ is at the center, when our Savior and God is at the center, and we are peripheral characters, then we can truly be free from the pressures and stress of having to be in control from the pressures and stresses of having to have it all together, from the pressures and stresses of having to be the Savior for ourselves and for others. We need to know who we are. We are not the main character. We are not the hero, not the Savior, not the Christ. We are disciples of the Savior, saved by Him, children of God. Our identity is securely in the Christ. We have his identity. We have his credit, if you will. And because of that, we have life. We have freedom. We have joy beyond what we could have if we were trying to be the main character. We often make ourselves or our group the savior of a situation. Sometimes we even do it unknowingly. We think that we are necessary, essential, so important that things couldn't be done without us. We praise ourselves or our organization when the praise belongs to God. Why do we make ourselves or our group the Savior, the Christ? Well, one, of, one reason is arrogance and pride of ourselves individually and the group that we're a part of. We think that we're so great, that we've done so much. We don't realize that anything we've accomplished is by the grace of God. Another reason why we make ourselves the Savior is control and fear. We're afraid what will happen if we don't have our hands on every little detail. We're afraid what will happen if we're not in control. We don't realize that maybe if we just get out of the way and trust God and obediently obey him, that God will be in control and he will work. And we don't need to be afraid because he is sovereignly sitting on the throne. Another reason why we might make ourselves like a savior is because of jealousy we're jealous of what we see others doing, of the accolades that they are being given, the importance that's being ascribed to them. And we want that. We're envious. We're jealous. But look at John. He is happy that Jesus is becoming greater. He says, my joy is now complete. We often become jealous or envious when others become more important. And now that's normal for us humans, but it is sinful even if people don't notice us or our hard work, it's okay. Because Jesus the Christ must increase. He must be exalted, and we must decrease. We are called to be a witness to Christ, the one who is the Savior. We are to be the aroma of his goodness and salvation. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, Thanks be to God 
who is in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are to be the aroma of Christ, a witness to him, pointing not at ourselves, but at him. We are not the Christ. Secondly, they are not the Christ. The second thing we see in our passage is that whether we realize it or not, we often look towards others to be the Christ, to be our Savior. We look to individuals or groups to save us when things get difficult and rough. The religious leaders went to John because they were looking for a Savior, for the Christ. We know from other passages that many of the religious leaders wanted the people to look to them to be the guide and Savior, that many of the religious leaders wanted to be great, wanted to guide the people to God. They would never have asked to be thought of as the Christ. They wouldn't have used those terms, but that was essentially what they wanted. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's why we read how the people were astonished because Jesus was teaching as one with authority and not as their scribes. And this caused the religious leaders to be jealous and angry, and we see that throughout the gospel as the gospels go on the religious leaders question and challenge Jesus more and more until they even plot for his death. We see in John 3 that some of John the Baptist's own disciples and followers were disappointed and questioning him because people were leaving John's ministry to follow Jesus. Some of these individuals most likely had hoped and expected that John was that long-awaited-for long for Messiah. Both the religious leaders' questions of John and his own disciples' doubtful questioning point to the human tendency to seek out a chosen leader who will deliver us, who will save us. We want a great man or woman who's going to be exceptional. We want a hero. More than that, we want a savior to make sense of the confusing, frustrating, and sin-broken world that we live in. All humans intuitively recognize that our world is broken by sin. We all know this even if we can't put words to it, we all long for salvation. On the one hand, this human tendency is correct. We should look for a savior. We should look for the Lord God's chosen savior. But on the other hand, we all too often have a horrible track record of not choosing God's chosen savior, of choosing fallible fellow humans to put in that place. Just look at church history. Just look at the Bible itself. People again and again place their hope for salvation in other humans. You can look around at modern American history even now. The book of Judges and Kings show again and again how God's people relied on their leaders. They did well when a strong leader who was chosen by God was raised up, but they fell into sin when the leader died and other leaders who were not chosen by the Lord, tried to lead the people. Left to their own devices, God's people chose the most outwardly impressive man to be their king, Saul. He was big, tall, strong, but he was disobedient to the Lord. That is what we will often do left to our own devices, is choose the last person we should. Because we look towards others to be the Christ, to be our savior from the trials and sufferings of this world. But other humans and groups cannot save us. They cannot provide the security, the refuge, and meaning we long for. Let us not fall into the mistake that so many of God's people have fallen to time and time again through history. Jesus alone, 
The one and only mediator is the Christ. Let us look to him for security and salvation. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thor was a superhero without equal. Yes, I heard some Thor fans out there. But in the movie Avengers Endgame, Thor has lost all hope. Thanos, the enemy, killed half of all living beings. Thor's Thor's home was destroyed. Those he loved, gone forever. The Avengers who remain are trying to find out a solution. And so they send the Hulk and a couple others to visit Thor in a cabin. Thor was hopeless, broken. Even though he was a hero, he had failed, and he'd seen his fellow heroes fail. In the movie, we find him living in a cabin, fat now, drinking beer and eating snacks while his friends get bullied by little kids in online games. Thor is a shadow of himself. Some of the Avengers come to help him fix things, And the moment Thanos' name is mentioned, you see his face change, the fear, the despair. He was scared, afraid of failing again. He and his hero buddies had failed, and he'd given up hope as a result. Just like Thor, we often place our hope in ourselves or in others, and then we despair when we fail, when others fail. It is understandable that we would look for a hero or a savior in this broken, fallen world, At times, this world can be heartbreakingly disappointing, right? Sickness, disease, financial turmoil, political strife, wars, wayward children, frustrating parents, an unloving spouse, a boss who just will not give us a break. The list could go on and on of the situations because of sin where we find ourselves in despair and lacking hope. We all want something or someone to give us relief, to rescue us, to get us out of our distress. Sadly, we too often don't look to our God and Savior, but instead, we make others into the Savior who will rescue us and give us relief. A pastor, a politician, a political party, a teacher, a spouse, a child, a parent. We look to people and place our hope and expectations in them, And then they fail us, and we despair. We get angry at them. No earthly individual or group can fix the wounds that only Christ can heal. No individual can meet the hopes of relief and rescue that we all have. They will break under them all. Only Christ can heal us. No individual can meet the hopes of relief that we desperately need. If we place our hope in others, we will be disappointed. We will become angry and disillusioned. Even the best, most godly of leaders are human, fallible, sinful, and in need of Jesus. Let us not place our hope and trust in them. Let us place our hope and trust in the one and only Christ, the one sent by God, the maker and savior, the sovereign king, the one who sent Jesus to bring healing to this sin-marred world. Let us look to him. Jesus alone is the Christ. And that's what we see last in our passage. We see that Jesus alone is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. We've already seen how John the Baptist pointed the religious leaders and his own followers to the one who will come after him. And shortly after that, in John 1, he says, we read how the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him 
and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. See, John knew that the most desperate need of humans was their sin. And so he knew that the Savior, the Christ, had to be somebody who could take away the sin of the world. And that's why he said Jesus is the greatest. Weeks later after that, after explaining that Jesus must increase and he must decrease, John told his followers in chapter 3, he who comes from heaven is above all, for he whom God has sent says the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus alone is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, because Jesus alone is the one who can give eternal life by taking away our sins, by paying the punishment that we deserved. That's what John knew as a prophet. This was people's greatest needs. People needed salvation. They didn't need deliverance from the immediate Roman oppression. That would be nice, but if they got deliverance from the immediate Roman oppression and didn't get salvation from sin, they would be back to square one. They would be still without hope. They needed salvation from sin. And so that's why John pointed them to Jesus. In fact, after Jesus' earthly ministry, the apostles and early Christians focused entirely on Christ. That is what they preached. That is who they told people about in the marketplaces and at their workplaces, because they knew that Jesus brought salvation. And they talked about Christ so much that that's why at Antioch, people began insulting them by calling them Christians. The word Christian actually means little Christ. It was a term of mocking, making fun of them, not a term of pride. And so we see that rather than looking to ourselves or others as the Christ, we look to the one and only Jesus. Rather than looking to our group or an outside group for salvation, we look to the one and only Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. And when we look to him alone, we should want to exalt him alone. What does the word exalt mean? Well, I could spend a, a lot longer explaining that, but I'm going to give you three things. First, I think the word exalt means to place in preeminence, to make that individual the most important thing, holding something in high regard. We are to hold Christ in the highest regard. He is to be the most important individual in our entire life. He is our Savior and Lord, but he is also the very God who created us. We should place him preeminently in every area of life. Second, I think the word exalt here means to live for. Another meaning of the word exalt is to make noble in character, to dignify. And the rest of the Bible is very clear that we make noble in character Christ by living for him and imitating him in our lives. So we exalt by Christ by becoming more like him, by dying to our sin and through the Holy Spirit growing in godliness to become more like Jesus so that more people see who he is. A third thing that I think the word exalt here means is praise. If someone is preeminent, if someone should be lived for, then that someone should be praised and worshiped. And not just here on Sunday morning, but in every area of life, in every moment. 
because that someone is both Savior and God. Jesus alone is the Christ, so let us exalt him by making him preeminent in our lives, living for him every day, and praising him all the time. Let us do this individually, and let us do this collectively as a church. To go back to Thor, the superhero, Thor is eventually restored to his status as a hero and given hope again when he goes back in the past and he meets his mother, and his mother, who moms can fix almost everything, right? Uh, meets his mother, and he goes back and meets her, and she encourages him, reminds him of who he is, that he's such a great guy. And when he realizes that he is still a hero, he exclaims, I'm still worthy, and his hammer comes crashing into his hand. He places his hope and his trust in himself and his friends again. He thinks, I'm worthy. Just like Thor had a a meeting to restore his confidence, we also need to have a meeting. But in that meeting, we don't realize that we're enough. We don't realize that we're still worthy. We realize that we are unworthy, that our sin is too great to undertake on our own. We realize that we are without hope, but we realize that another is worthy. Another is great. Another has taken our sins upon his shoulders that we might become children of God. We need that meeting. And when we come to that realization, we find our salvation and identity in the Christ, the true Christ. And these two, there's only really two responses to Jesus, acceptance or rejection. And these two responses are exemplified in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You're probably familiar with this parable about the Pharisee and tax collector who were praying. And Jesus talks about their different types of prayer. The Pharisee boasted about himself and how great he was. He thought, I'm the Christ. My group, the Pharisees, have it all together. They're the greatest. They're the ones who will bring salvation to Israel. He viewed himself as a savior The other person in the parable is the tax collector who realized how great his sin was, who all he did was beat his chest before God and merely cried out to God for mercy. Those are the two responses, the only two responses to Jesus. That's why Paul constantly told his churches to boast in God, in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, We read Paul saying, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that if he boasts about himself, it will be about his weaknesses, because that exalts the Lord, because the Lord uses him even though he is a weak individual. How different is that to me? How different is that to you? We rarely boast in our weaknesses, don't we? We should exalt Jesus because only Jesus can bring the healing that we need. Only Jesus can fix our problems. Only Jesus can help us grow and be transformed through the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter in Acts 4, when he's preaching to the Christ, says, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul writing to Timothy, his chosen son in the Lord, his successor, if you will, he writes to him, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. When we realize that Jesus is the only solution, the only Christ and Savior, we need to pray. We need to confess and repent that I'm the problem. Jesus is the solution. 
asking him to help us through his spirit to live in imitation of him. We don't immediately go to other people as a problem or other groups or other individuals. We confess our own sins first and then look to Jesus to make us more like him. And when we realize that Jesus is the only solution, the only Christ and Savior, true freedom and true joy will be found, just like John, whose joy was completed when he saw that the bridegroom had finally come. John joyfully confessed that he was not the Christ. He joyfully saw his followers leave him and follow Jesus, saying, he must increase and I must decrease. I love this story of the donkey who thought he was a king. I think I've told it here before. But there was once a donkey who was just minding his own business, eating his food in his master's yard, and some people came, and they took him, and they put a man on his back. And the donkey was going into a city, and as he was going in, people were shouting and praising. And then they began to lay their coats on the ground for him to walk on and wave the branches in front of him. And the donkey began to think, man, I'm such a great donkey. Look at all these people who came out to see me take this guy into the city. Wow, I'm the greatest donkey who's ever lived. What he didn't realize is that Jesus, the King of Kings, the Savior, was sitting on his back. He was the reason people were praising. He was the reason people were shouting Hosanna. He was the reason that people were putting their robes on the ground. Jesus is the one that is to be exalted. Because as Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ has died and been raised to new life. We have victory in him. He is exalted. Every knee will bow to him one day. If Jesus alone is the Christ, the one and only Savior, the Lord and God, then do we exalt him in our lives? Or do we foolishly think like that donkey, that we're great, that we're exceptional, that we are worthy of praise? Do we just pay empty lip service to him here on Sunday morning? Do we live radically transformed lives for him throughout the week? We too often look to ourselves, even those of us who have claimed Christ, we fall back into that bad, sinful habit of looking to ourselves and others for salvation when only Jesus can provide that. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, Jesus alone is the Christ, so let us exalt him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning so thankful that you are our Savior, our Lord. We thank you that even though we who know you have experienced your salvation, even we who foolishly look to ourselves and others for salvation, we thank you that you grant us abundant mercy and grace. Help us like that tax collector to just beat our chest in repentance of our sin and come before you joyfully proclaiming that you are the Christ. You must increase and we must decrease. Help us to trust you this week as we go out to live our lives for you. Help us as a church to trust you in the coming years to make you great. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you join us in stand?